before I started recording this podcast, Paul noticed something that I was holding, and it was a tree branch with a metal figure on it. But what is that stick there? I'm ready to be transported to another world with like... This is uh, one of my uh, treasures here. I, I need a walking stick. I'm getting I'm getting pretty old here and get, I need, need a walking stick. Also, this is you, Wood. And let's just say you don't want to be on the wrong end of this stick. Let's just, let's just put it that way. Uh, it's a very nice, hefty stick. And it has a Pontiac radiator cap. That's the Pontiac India. That's Chief Pontiac. Remember they used to screw them on the top of the radiators of the old, old cars? Well, you're you're so much older than me, Tim. Yeah. You're uh, yeah. about the exact same age almost. But uh yeah. anyway, but I don't remember that, but I do remember different different yeah, things. Yeah, well, this is the Pontiac Indian from, from a Pontiac car and or something. I don't even know which which model it was from. it was something my my father probably had. It was I found it and uh, I like it, and I like it on top of my my stick since i'm uh, fighting a critter in the house a bat yeah. flew into my area today you may be entertained beyond the usual levels here <laughs> we uh, usually get the cat and the and the dog mainly we hear we don't yeah. see the dog as much we hear him but the cat you see because the, the it's like cats know this too they know how to be in the place where no one really thought they should be right and uh, uh, yeah, we have not yet seen a bat. And I, I fully believe you, of course, that there is a bat in the room because we've had discussions about your bat problems from time to time. So it could be exciting, but I guess we should tell people that this is uh, this week in common sense. In bat common sense. That this, you know, we should have, this should have been a week when we were talking a bunch about the lab leak theory and the wet markets in China. We have the wrong week for that bat. Yes, because we didn't mention it. But too bad. Uh, you have wrote five pieces this week, and normally on the podcast, uh, we talk about the five pieces. Sometimes we concentrate on one and let the others go by somewhat more hastily. The first two days of the week, we talked about basically uh, John Kerry and climate change and and just the you know the whole all the ridiculous uh, things that that you know people in in public office who are who are you know looking for something to scare us with um, you know want to uh, I'm getting confused here with something jumping up on my thing but a bat no, not a bat. Not a, not a, a rat. Bat. Maybe it's a rat. <laughs> <laughs> no rats. No rats. Um, but th it is a rat. It's uh, it's John Kerry, and it's this whole idea that that somehow we're all going to die again. This culture of death, and we're all going to die. And it's going to be ten years from today. Of course, it was going to be ten years from ten years ago too. Um, and it's and and of course, if you say this, you're a climate denier, climate change denier. Climate's change, and you know we can argue about how much is caused by the activity of men and women on this planet, or by other things happening on this planet, or the sun. And there's all kinds of discussions we can have, but the kind of hypocrisy you see. Uh, and, and I remember my brother, uh, and I have several brothers, but, uh, but one of them said this, they didn't say it in unison, 
um, one when, when we were talking climate change early on said he just is always skeptical when a new problem comes up and the only solution is to just hand government more power just as fast as you can shovel your power away. And, uh, and of course, that's what they're always talking about. We need, we're all going to need to sacrifice. And uh, austerity theater, uh, your title, Tim, uh, congratulations. I think it should be nominated for some sort of Emmy or Academy Award. Um, because that's what we get all the time. I mean, it just fits. And we're talking about Spain in this piece and the Ministry of Ecological Transition and Demographic Challenge. And this is a case of Teresa, and I may get her name screwed up, but Ribera, uh, and she is the head of that organization, Midico, for, uh, as, as an acronym. So what did she do? Well, she pulled a Pete Buttigieg, and, uh, and she decided that she was going to fly, not commercially, so even a bigger footprint, fly to a conference, and then take a limo to a safe distance, just a little bit outside of the conference, and then hop on her bicycle and ride the bicycle the rest of the way to the conference. Now, that, that grown people can allow themselves to, to be so foolish and so sickening and dishonest and two-faced and hypocritical and every horrible name you can think of, this is ridiculous. And yet, you know, these they continue to do it and continue to talk about how wonderful they are and and how they're i mean they all want to save the world and and look i get that i mean i, I live in washington i'm working for causes all the time i think term limits you know wouldn't necessarily save the world but it would have gone a long way and it will help when when it's uh enacted i i always think of ed crane the former head of the cato institute who uh was fond of saying you know, a lot of people say that uh, term limits, you know, isn't the greatest thing in the world. It's not going to solve every problem. I, I disagree. It will. <laughs> I thought you were going to quote his great line about uh, even if you had doubts about term limits, if you know who's against them all the time. Yes. You get a clue. Yes. I mean, he said something to that effect. I mean. Yeah, it, it couldn't hurt. The funny thing is. That's why term limits is such a powerful issue, because no matter how much money they spend and so on, most voters just, what's the worst that can happen? I lose some guy and what, you know, they're, none of them are, are that fond of these people. And, uh, and, and it's not like, the funny thing I always see is that the Democrat who elected a Democrat, voted for a Democrat congressman, uh, the Republican who voted for a Republican congressman, they're as dissatisfied with that congressman as you know anyone else you know. Um, so it's it's across the board. But then on Tuesday we really shifted gears completely and gave a great big thank you to John Kerry. 
Now, if you're shocked, if you didn't read the, the script on Tuesday, the big thank you was because Carrie said there will be no reparations for undeveloped countries. You see where this is headed? Everybody immediately sees where this is headed. How can we steal money from people who have it? And, uh, and you know, the fact that Kerry said, no, we're not gonna pay any reparations is, is nice and wonderful. Thank you, John Kerry. But the truth is at a previous conference, now somebody, some idiot from the executive branch going to a conference anywhere in the world can agree to whatever they want to agree to, but it doesn't, it doesn't bind the United States of America. It has to be a treaty that passes the US Senate for it to be binding on our foreign policy. And, uh, and, and of course they don't do that because then people who have to run for election would have to take a position on this. And that would be very scary for them because they do so many ridiculous things. But the US previously voted with the majority at one of these conferences that there should be reparations, that the United States of America should send money to Bangladesh. And that you know basically the polluters should give money to the countries that haven't been developed and haven't polluted as much. Now, the one little caveat that's always going to be part of this is that China, which is the biggest polluter in the world, should be counted as an underdeveloped country that kind of gets to pollute because we want them to be developed. You know, <laughs> they're always talking, we want China to be the most developed. And, and look, I don't want them to be stymied in some way. Uh, and I'm talking about the people of China. But, uh, but this idea that you know, we're for super development of a state in which nobody has any political freedom whatsoever uh, is a little bit scary. And our constant policies over decades of just being sometimes asleep at the switch. Oh, you wanted all of our, you know, technological secrets. Oh, here you go. Uh, of having things like police stations that the Chinese run in the US and Confucius Institutes that are doing all kinds of things to silence any dissent on US college campuses about the behavior of China. All of these different things. Uh, and it, it, you know, when, when I mention China, I go to John Kerry and the thing I think most, which is get this guy off of any, hopefully he's not on any government payroll, but stop him from being any part of the federal government. And the idea of him going to China, and, and I don't think if, if I was the biggest devotee of we're all going to die in 10 years if we don't do climate change, I don't think it would change my position on how we ought to play climate change with a CCP-run China. Because they're they're polluting more and more and more. They're building coal plants as fast as they can. They'll tell you whatever you want to hear. And, they're, and they've gotten good at it because they realize the West is stupid or something. They're so willing to kind of enter into agreements that like all the agreements before them are gonna be broken by the, by the CCP run China.
And and so China will make whatever agreement you want. They're not going to keep it. And you'd be a fool to think they were going to keep it. I mean, if you took them to court, they'd almost like go, hey, look, he's never, ever said anything. So I thought when he said you have to do this, he didn't really mean it. And and so the idea of making some deal with them, and I saw a headline this week, and we may see it in a script next week, but um, we may not. Uh, a lot of stuff to write about. But I saw a headline that said, uh, China willing to work with the U.S. on climate change with other uh, uh, other uh, compromises or you know other political compromises. And of course, of course, they'll promise you all kinds of things in 2030 and 2040. Oh, in 2050, they are going to beat the band doing all kinds of good stuff. But right now, why don't you let them put millions of Uyghurs into concentration camps and look the other way? Why don't you let them break their word and instead of stealing all the freedoms of Hong Kong in 50 years, eh, they steal them maybe in 30-something years because uh, Hong Kongers were starting to really demand more freedoms because they realized what the game was. We have to recognize who China is. I call them Chinazis, and I don't do it flippantly. I do it because I think it's the most honest term you could have. And you cannot play games with people like that. You cannot make deals and think they're going to keep them. They're not. They haven't ever. And, and this idea that we would put some stupid deal like that and put the rest of what's happening in the world when I think of a uh, uh, of what what's going on in Asia with Japan and South Korea, South Korea, which has always been very antsy, is asking for nuclear weapons. They want nuclear weapons uh, under their control. They're, they may have to do sure that they will do what needs to be done. Um, they are scared, and they're scared of North Korea, but they're also scared of China, Japan is doubling its military spending. They're scared to death of China. Uh, Taiwan is scared of China. Uh, Australia is having all kinds of problems with China. The, you know, the Philippines a few years ago was saying, you know, we want you out. We, we're, we're getting buddy-buddy with China. And then all of a sudden was like, why don't you guys come back in? And here's a bunch of bases uh, that face China. Uh, the world is scared. The EU, you know, Germany has sent ships through the Taiwan Strait. France has sent ships through the Taiwan Strait. And, and we're, we're at this point where people are realizing we could face World War III. And the more that you see a united front, I think the more the Chinese are rational, genocidal, maniac totalitarians, and they're not likely to attack Taiwan or do things in the South China Sea that will be, you know, will, will lead to a conflict. And to let some stupid agreement about climate change with people building more coal plants than the whole rest of the world combined, who never keep any agreement, that is the height of insanity. And, uh, and you should go and read. Thank you, John Kerry. It was a very light piece. What now? Bless you, John Kerry. 
bless you, bless you. Oh, I did thank him in the piece. Right. Uh, uh, but, but go read that and it's a fun piece i think i think you'll you'll like it uh and it's not full of <laughs> of of the rant that i just just went on it's really full of making fun a little bit of of how silly this this whole climate change is but it becomes not silly but uh but dangerous when the pretense reaches a level that it might get in the way of a very, very serious, I mean, the world, and I think this is, is true uh, across the spectrum of, of political beliefs and concerns, the world is closer to World War III at this moment than it has been 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, really since the Cuban Missile Crisis there's been nothing close to this situation. And, uh, and people will mention, well, there's been other Taiwan Strait crises. <clears throat> but of course, during those crises, uh, China was not nearly as military, you know, the, the military power that it is today. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I think, you know, as time has gone on, the U.S. has, has just uh, again and again uh, sent the message that we're weak. Uh, just just going, running constantly to Beijing to meet with them, acting like, oh, oh, we're so scared that we're not having person-to-person -person communications. When you're in a negotiation or a, you know, just a standoff with an enemy, it's not helpful to project weakness. It's not smart. And, uh, and it just seems like the, the Biden administration is, it's almost like that's what, the, even when they're being tough, they're trying to look weak. <laughs> and they also look incoherent. One thing you didn't get a chance to mention in your piece is uh, the goofiness surrounding his private plane. Remember the jet business that happened about eight days ago? Yes, yes. Well, we should tell in case anybody hasn't hasn't seen that that Kerry was testifying, and that's this piece is off his testimony on the Hill where he said we're not going to pay any reparations. But he also was asked about a private plane, and him using all this, you know, he's producing a lot of carbon and. Uh, and uh, emissions and 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 yet you know he he acts like you know he's the the saint and uh, and he said well his family has never had a private plane he's never gone to he's never used a private plane I mean all this kind of stuff and you're thinking well wow boy they sure got this wrong I mean I was thinking really because he goes on and on and finally the guy mentions are you really denying that you've had a private plane and you've flown all over these places? And finally he admits, well, my wife has a private plane. Now, I don't know about most people, but my wife, I consider part of the family. That's just the, that's the kind of husband I am. It's just like, she's part of the family. I mean, what is that? Oh, And you would think he would be savvy enough that he didn't think he could get away with that. But think about it. Think about if he had been a Republican in the Trump administration, every American 
would know what he said. It might be a lie that should get him impeached. I mean, it, it would be the, the noise that would have come out of that would have just been incredible. And as it is, it's, it's something you and I know because we follow the news and so on. And, and if you delve into conservative circles, you will have heard that. Um, you know, there's not going to be a story in the Washington Post. There's not going to be anything in the New York Times. And, and increasingly, this isn't a few things that they're blocking. We have, we have total, you know, 99.9% .9 narrative media. And, and that doesn't seem to be changing. I was wondering, now that we've covered these, the two top pieces for the week for you, could we get through the other three pieces in just a few minutes? Would it be possible to snap through title, blurb, your synopsis in just a few minutes? You, you want me to speed, speed read? I was wondering if you could do it. And John Kerry, I like ragging on John Kerry because I consider him the biggest ass in American politics. He is. I had one thing I wanted to mention, and, and uh, yes, I think we can, but we also talk about our Today feature each day. We talk about what's happened in history. And in 1848, the Women's Rights Convention opened in Seneca Falls, New York. And, uh, and that was our, our Today on uh, what was that Wednesday? One of the interesting things about that, I thought, you know, I'll bet that was that conference that Frederick Douglass, who's one of my favorite Americans, went to. And I bring it up, and it was. There were 32 men there, and there were 58 women. And I just, I always like when you see someone who has fought for their own freedom and believes in freedom, who goes and fights for other people's freedom. And of course, it's not surprising because, I mean, who wants, to, what man wants to live in a world in which women are there, but they're not free? Because they're not the same people. Uh, unfortunately, they can't be. And so, you know, it, but it, it's neat. And uh, uh, I always kind of think of Frederick Douglass as the, you know, he's, he just, he, he was right about everything across the board and engaged. And I like that a lot. Very good. Wednesday's piece was haunted by the specter of Mao. And uh, I encourage you to go read it. I'll just say this. I have seen from the very beginning of the, uh, the, the George Floyd and really well before that, when my, what was it, Milo, Yiannopoulos or whatever at Berkeley and, and uh, Ben Shapiro and different people. There have been so many. Charles Murray is another one who's been attacked. Yes. When, when, you, when you find yourself living in a country in which speakers are shouted down and threatened with violence and actually struck, and people who want to listen to them are also shouted down and intimidated and struck and beaten, and when there are riots in which uh, buildings are burning, but the news media people standing in front of the building are talking about the mostly peaceful pro protest, or when you discover that a bunch of people died as part of those riots and protests, 
and and I went to protest. So I, I don't I don't say that in in terms of anybody who went out to protest. That's your right, and I'm with you. Even if I don't agree with what you're protesting, I like the person protesting on the other side better than the person on the other side who's sitting on their butt. Uh, and so so I, I don't say it that way. But when things are destroyed and people are killed. One, it should be reported by the news media, and two, that's not protesting. Um, that that's that reaches a, a, a different level. And all along, I think of the Cultural Revolution in in uh, China. And interestingly enough, I thought that before I really knew very much. I've read several books over the last uh, few months about the Cultural Revolution in China, and uh, it was a horrible, terrible. It was. I've read so much about different uh, genocides and, and, you know, look, uh, world history, the last century, uh, there's a lot of ugly, ugly, horrible stuff to read about. And I remember reading about uh, Cambodia and Pol Pot and, and starvation and, and to think of how horrible that was and, and you know, the, the Third Reich and the Holocaust and, the, and so on and so on. The Cultural Revolution, it was so tough to read about because, in essence, it wasn't the state killing all kinds of people. It was the state purposely whipping up the public to kill each other. And there, it, there's just something deeply sick and horrible about that. Uh, and just terrible, terrible things that happened. And what's so scary is you can see once anger and hatred and viciousness and, and you start to stoke it and, and really enable it and enthusiastically push it, people can die. And, and people who are not horrible people every day of the week can become horrible people. Uh, you know, we, we have a free will and, and circumstances and mobs uh, make a big difference. And, uh, and some of that's mentioned in, in some of the comments to this piece, but Haunted by the Specter of Mao, uh, July 19th, um, give it a read and, and, um, and I'll shut up and move on. And I'll move on to a thought. We have a thought every day of the week, uh, seven days in a row. And then the next week, we just do the same darn thing. This is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he says, and I think it's fitting here, and the simple step of a simple, courageous man is not to partake in falsehood, not to support false actions. You know, you're usually thinking about the courageous man does something, but so often in society, uh, it's a, it's a, very important step of courage not to join you know the the mob not to join the mob even if the mob's partly right uh if they're if they're at all wrong if they're pushing a falsehood um don't join up seems very simple but but it it, it can become more complicated and then we had uh, big biz big china alliance and this is about a lawsuit uh, Cisco had some software. They fashioned it for the Chinese Communist Party. 
uh, and it has been used to hunt down and and uh, and do horrible, unspeakable things to Falun Gong practitioners. And in fact, uh, I think it was yesterday was the 24th anniversary of China basically outlawing Falun Gong. Now, this is a, a spiritual practice. Uh, eat good food, exercise, tell the truth, really scary things like that. And the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chai Nazis, that's, who's, that's who they are, decided to outlaw it and just imprison anybody who wasn't going to give it up. And it, it has been 24 years of a genocide. And it's why I point out to people when they talk about the Uyghurs, that yes, that's a genocide, and it is not the first. And so when 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 a regime, you know, look, one one genocide to a regime, could we have could we have genocide limits? Uh, so uh, this is a, an interesting case. Whether in the end, uh, Cisco will be found guilty of of somehow conspiring with the Chinese. Communist Party to uh, to do unspeakable things. Um, I don't know, but I have to say I'm glad they brought it, and I'm glad they brought it because I think we need to be talking about it, and that uh, corporations that are powerful, and, and whether you're whoever's powerful, whether you're incorporated or not, um, I think we have to be on guard what they're doing, and it can be very lucrative to work with genocidal totalitarians and uh and yet i i still don't want people to do it and the last piece of the week is the piece for today and i tell you i can't remember what it's about it's called counterintuitive counterintuitive and that's my title um maybe that's why i, I can't just, remember <laughs> this is uh uh and and tim's the title guru so that's why i always give him a, a hard time because i'm very jealous i love titles and i'm not bad at them but but you're the best um this is just so hard to wrap your head around uh cambridge massachusetts right outside of boston the boston globe does a piece and basically they've decided not to offer advanced math in middle school so algebra algebra two geometry i didn't get very far so i'll run out of names but calculus all that kind of stuff which calculus would be later <coughs> they decide not to not to offer it anymore and i i'm i'm thinking and of course you probably have figured out why because we live in such a screwed up society it's not that hard to figure out how screwed up and and exactly what kind of rails we're we're jumping off of but wouldn't you think that it's the school's system's job and, and their mission and their vocation, their, you know, just they live and breathe. We've got to help students learn more, be more effective, more knowledgeable and able to change the world. I mean, this is all good stuff, right? But no, we want them to be less knowledgeable on math because the problem is it's going to be too many of the Asian and white students who are getting the advanced classes. And of course, I happen to believe 
that you should let, I mean, you shouldn't change the standards, but let, let people take advanced classes if they're willing to do the work, whether they hit the test or not. If at all possible, we got to get a second classroom, we got to move a couple desks, let's do anything we can to give people the opportunity to be in these advanced classes. But the idea of getting rid of them because you didn't like the racial makeup of who passed the tests and this is, I mean, the Supreme Court just finally ruled after, after decades of the Supreme Court, you know, kicking the can down the road on affirmative action. But this is happening all over the country. It's not just in Cambridge. And they say it clearly that um, the district's aim, explains the Globe, was to reduce disparities between low-income children of color who weren't often represented in such courses and their more affluent peers. It's, it's uh, and, and we, we point at, at the end to Procrustes. Uh, did I say that correctly? Oh, yes. I did. Every once in a while, I get it right, like one out of every 200 times, who cut people down to size so they could all fit in the, you know, in the same bed, basically. And you might enjoy the graphic where it shows people, some with their head cut off, some not. Uh, but, but this is the height of insanity. As a, as a country, we are saying we would prefer that our children growing up not be as advanced in math because we are so afraid that the folks who advance the most won't have the right skin color. And it's as simple as that. And what's so horrible about it is it's also so stupid and so terrible to the very people that they're acting like they're trying to help. They wanna help low-income students. They wanna help black and brown students. And of course, so much of it is that those are one and the same in a lot of cases. No, not as many cases as Joe Biden thinks. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, go look up the clip. It's there. Uh, but this sort of of kind of blanket, let's not have it. Well, it doesn't hurt the wealthiest kids because, of course, their parents get them the tutoring or whatever they need, or they'll take them out of school and put them in another school. They'll homeschool them and get them a tutor to work on the math. There's lots of different options. And they're closing schools in different places in the country because there's not as many kids somehow going to school as there were before the pandemic. What's that about? I'll tell you what I think it's about. I think it's about parents finding alternatives. And then when the pandemic's over, realizing I really like this alternative. So there's more homeschooling, there's more private schooling, and, and there's gonna be a continuing move to that. Look. People get ahead through education as much as I think they've been sold a bill of goods by, you know, the, the colleges who are teaching people how to, you know, make kites and stuff. It's, it's, uh, you know, uh, people need knowledge and skills and they're going to go get them. And if they don't go get them, if, if, if culturally somehow that's not a big deal, well, you're going to fall behind economically. And one of the interesting things in this is that when you think of Asian students, of course, they, they say students of color, 
And, and so at certain times, Asian students are not students of color anymore. Sometimes they're students of color. <laughs> Sometimes they're not. But the average Asian American makes more money than the average Caucasian white American makes. And, and I'm great with that because I think it's because they work harder. I mean, I think it's all merit. It's just all merit. I'm sure there's somebody who tripped and fell and found a $20 bill or something, but it doesn't happen often enough. They work. And that's what, I mean, it, the fact that when it comes to education and you see the way that Asian students have su succeeded uh, at such a higher clip, and then to not draw any lesson from that just seems to me to be, you know, that's just stupid. You'd have to say they're, they're doing something right. What is it? And of course, we've talked before. I mean, it's, it's called a work ethic. It's called having, you know, intact families where there's a bunch of people around, even if mom's working or dad's over here. And, and I think in a lot of these families, mom and dad are working. And they're not sitting around, you know, twiddling their thumbs, calling for the tutor. Um, they are working. And so it's extended families. It, you know, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Let's, let's go investigate. But what would you want to do at this point other than to say, let's, and, and it's true with everything. Look at who's at the top. What are they doing? Maybe we should copy some of that. And we're human beings. We copy better than anybody. That's what we do. That succeeds, that behavior succeeds, let's model it. So, in, and instead, we're killing it. That succeeds, that creates, you know, a, a, a gap. We can't have gaps. We have to have lots of statistics, but no gaps. And uh, this is chopping off the head of, uh, of education. And it's, uh, it's really hard to believe that we've gotten to this point. What extent do you think it is educators knowing they can't educate with beans and they want to do other things like you know teach kids trans and various other things that are i guess more fun i don't know why that would be more fun i would wouldn't want to do it but uh, <laughs> no, i'm not going to comment on that <laughs> their enthusiasm to give up strikes like maybe they're underachievers maybe they just don't want to teach anymore it's hard to teach uh, you know so, of course, administrators who make the decisions, they don't teach anything. They're just basically corral the teachers. Maybe it's hard to teach, uh, it's harder to teach uh, smart kids. I don't know why that would be the case. It seems like they're the easiest to teach. So I don't know what's going on here, but. I'll tell you, part of it is I think it's a tougher student body than it used to be. And part of that is because I think the average income of the family that sends a kid to public schools is lower than it used to be. Certainly lower I mean, uh, wealthier people are having fewer and fewer kids. Oh, sure. Poorer people are having, you know, and so it's so it's it's a tougher, you know, but <laughs> that's why we pay them the big bucks. And and I happen to think that I mean, almost every teacher I know, I think, is a pretty decent person, and and from what I can tell, is likely to be a very good teacher. Um, but we do have a system that rewards you just as much, maybe more, if you're not, if you're not very good. In other words, if you want to be a terrible teacher, like in New York, they send you to a, a room and you get your salary because the, the union won't let them fire you. It, it, I would, 
I almost would advocate a revolution where the teachers of each school take it over and hold the, the principal and friendly hostage, you know, uh, he'll be in on the deal and just say, hey, we're going to take over and we're going to do it the way we want to do it. Because I think they actually care about kids and and would would they might try some crazy things, but when they didn't work, they would change. And and the fact that there's not more parental control, parents are seeing the the you know the the teachers mainly know whether maybe they came by and said hey to the teacher after they graduated. They're not their problem anymore after they graduate. And, and sometimes the parents are hoping they're not going to be their problem either, but they might be. Very few kids, you know, in their mid-20s come back to live with their history teacher or their math teacher. They come back to live with their parents. And so the parents have some concern about whether they're really learning something to go ahead and, you know, have a skill. And so, you know, there's got to be that accountability. But I do think that, that the problem isn't a bunch of lousy teachers. Uh, the problem is a system that's horrible. And that doesn't allow good teachers to to do good. And I do think it's a tougher I do think it's a tougher environment than it used to be. I would just like to get rid of the Department of Education and every law associated with it. Kill <laughs> it all. And then, I mean, your local district, you can figure out what the best way to handle it would be. Years ago, they, you know, it, it dawned on me that it's like they act like education is some new thing we've discovered that. They're really trying to figure out how do you do this? And it's like, this has happened all throughout time. This is not a new thing. This is like the oldest thing you can imagine. And, and why we all of a sudden are stumbling. I mean, we were getting better and better and better at it, it seemed. And now we're not. And what that's about is the capture of education by political interests. And when you have... I mean, the amount of money we spend on higher education. And I mean, every time I've gone to, you know, the kid's college or somebody else's college, they're just building fancy schmancy build, buildings as fast as they can. I think of the, I think of the dorm room I had and I see some of these dorm rooms. I'm thinking, this is like a hotel, except I don't think I could afford it. So, I mean, it, it, the, the amount of spending. And then of course, what is all that wonderful money for education? What is it? What has it accomplished? It's accomplished a lot of people in big debt. It's accomplished the type of education that you can't work your way through college in two or three or four years, or not two or three, but three or four or five years. You're, you know, and and my brother actually, my oldest uh, brother did graduate in three years, which. He did to save my, you know, my, my dad had three kids in college at the same time. And uh, that was, he was, he was, you know, he woke up and screamed. No, he didn't. But, uh, but I mean, that's tough. And, and so my oldest brother, he went on, he was going summer school and he was calculated. He got through in three years. Um, used to be, I mean, you knew all kinds of people who worked their way through school. And now you, you, you know, some people who work their way through school, I mean, my youngest is working her way through school, um, but it's, it's, you know, and, and, but a lot of people are doing it with $20,000 worth of debt or 50 or a hundred. 
And I mean, leaving school with $100,000 worth of debt, you better be a doctor or a, or a good lawyer or you're in, you're in trouble. Well, I should express sympathy for the, the administrators of these schools because they fail. And I failed to make a short podcast this time. So I'm a terrible administrator of a podcast. Well, you may be able to cut here or there too, but yeah, I don't think so. But at least I didn't have a bat, so I'm I'm uh, happy as a clam. <laughs> and I think the audience is a little bit disappointed. Yeah, well, you know, maybe tune in next week. Thank you for tuning in. This has been this week of Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Vircola, and we'll be here next week. We hope. Keep your fingers crossed. You can find us on Rumble, you can find us on SoundCloud, but always at thisiscommonsense.org.